Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Fansom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Storybox podcast. For those of you that are new to this show, welcome. My name is Jay Phantom. I'm thrilled that you guys are actually here today because this one is going to be very in-depth. And uh, if you guys like in-depth conversations, this is the one especially for you. Uh, When we're, we're talking about the brain today, we're talking about your mental health and we're talking about how we can go about cleaning up our own mental mess Five simple, scientifically proven steps to reduce anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking by my next guest today, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Caroline Leaf to the Storybox. My goodness, I have wanted to speak with Dr. Leaf for a very long time, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have her here on, on the podcast today. So you guys are going to really get a lot out of this one. I had so many questions for her. We went for over an hour. Well, we could have definitely gone longer. But for those of you that don't know who Dr. Leaf is, her work and what she actually stands for, you're going to get to know a lot about it in this in this conversation. But I'll read out a, a short bio for you. Dr. Caroline Leaf is a communication pathologist and cognitive neurologist, neuroscientist, I should say, sorry, with the master's and PhD in communication pathology and a BSc Lopopedics specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Those are big words there, so I apologize if I got any of them wrong. Since the early 1980s, she has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of our mental health, and the formation of memory. She was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change neuroplasticity with directed mind input. During her years in clinical practice and her work with thousands of underprivileged teachers and students in homes all across South Africa and the USA, she developed her theory, the geodesic information processing theory of how we think, build memory and learn into tools and processes that have transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of individuals with traumatic brain injury, TBI and other traumas as well. 
Uh, she also deals with uh, learning disabilities, autism, dementia, and mental health issues like anxiety and depression. She has helped hundreds of thousands of students and adults learn how to use their mind to detox and grow their brain to succeed in every area of their life, including school, university, and the workplace. She is a best-selling author of Switch On Your Brain, Learn, Think, uh, Think, Learn, Succeed, Think and Eat Yourself Smart, and many, many more. She's written so many books, and she keeps writing uh, incredible, more incredible books, I should say. She teaches at a academic, medical, and neuros neuroscience conferences all, and churches as well all around the world and to various audiences um, across the world as well. She's also involved in the global eco movement, which trains physicians worldwide on the mind-body connection, mental health, and how to avoid physician burnout. My goodness. And she has a new book out currently, which is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five Simple Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking, which you can go and get your copy right now. Uh, all the links are in the show notes below, but if you really get something from this episode, you're going to want to read her book because I found a lot of this stuff, the research, uh, all the information in here is is highly, highly researched and studied. You can really tell um, just by reading the first couple of chapters actually, but you're going to get a lot of help from this book. So if this conversation uh, is helpful to you, then I guarantee you this book is going to be even more helpful uh, once again. So Please, everyone, I don't want to belabor on the point, but if you do get something from this, share it around to your friends and your family. Let them know of this episode. Uh, hey, say, if, you, if you're struggling with mental health issues, which is a lot of us currently, I know I, I struggle with uh, quite a bit of it, but please share it around to your friends. Uh, let them know of this one. And please leave a five-star rating and review over and Apple podcast. goes a long way once again in building this community and helping more and more people uh, that do have uh, problems and, and realizing their worth as well through stories like Dr. Leafs. So, you know what time it is? It is time to clean up our own mental mess right now and dive into the Storybox podcast where we will learn, we will learn a lot. And I mean a lot. So you're going to have to put on your thinking brain right now uh, from the amazing story and the wisdom and advice from Dr. Caroline Leaf. Oh, thank you, Jay. I'm so excited to be on your podcast with you. And I love the concept of unboxing people's stories. It's just so cool. I love your podcast too. It's really good. So thank you. Well, thank you for the amazing compliment. I apologize in advance if I butchered that introduction. All those big words. <laughs> no, you did so. They're a mouthful. They really are a mouthful. You did really well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's it's a real pleasure, like I said, to have you here because I've been a huge fan or admirer of your work for quite some time and oh, always you. been interested, I guess you could say, in the cognitive brain function, how our brain thinks, why we have mental health problems in the first place, why we struggle with anxiety, stress, and how we can actually reduce it or manage it properly. And I'd love to get your take on it in just a moment, but I normally have a question that I ask all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like for you? 
I love that. Well, success is such an individualized thing. It's, so it looks different for every person. And I definitely don't think it's an extrinsic thing only, which is the world that we live in is very much about how wealthy you are and how many likes you have on social media or something like that. Success is got to be divine, designed by the, it's defined for me by your internal peace. You're being able to be at peace with who you are, where you are at, and with the having peace about what you still want to achieve, but not feeling like, oh gosh, I haven't done it and I'm not a success. It's it's really finding mental peace in the space where you're at in your life at the moment mm-hmm. and being able to objectively assess where I've come from and where I'm going and, where, and accepting where I am now. And that doesn't mean I'm not motivated to grow and change because one thing about life that I believe is also success related is that you are going to constantly change as a neuro, as a neuroscientist scientist, your brain is always changing. So success is embracing the fact that change is inevitable and not to be scared of it. So it's all the things like possibilities, mindset and expectations, mindset, but overarching all of that um, enables me to be able to to be in a mental space where I'm comfortable and at peace with where I am and and with where I want to go. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious because I myself, I struggle with a bit of change growing up. I was very anxious when change occurred. So I'm curious when someone does go through a period of change that they don't want to actually happen in their life, what advice would you give them to say, hey, here, here are some strategies that you can, you can implement to sort of accept this change as not so bad? It's, well, that's an excellent question and, and and a very important one because and it's very, very tied into mental health because um, change is inevitable and we all know that, but yet we still resist that. So it's shifting your mindset around the concept of change and getting away from the fear of change. And there's, so there's so much fear around change because of the uncertainty and all those implications. So it's when you can get the mindset of I'm comfortable with uncertainty, you'll get comfortable with change. And that comes from having a possibilities mindset. And a possibilities mindset is one that looks at the world as, okay, this is my plan for tomorrow. This is my plan for the next week or whatever, the next year, but I'm open to changes and I'm open to, I don't get, you know, so if in, in advance, you can, you, you can literally wire that into your brain. You can, because your mind and brain, and we're going to be discussing this are separate and you can, your mind's got this incredible inner wisdom, which is actually very comfortable with change. So uh, we actually are as humans, we think we uncomfortable, but if you dig down deep, you're actually quite comfortable with change. And it comes from accessing that depth of our wisdom and it means a change in how we use our mind and so that's something that I've learned over these years it's something I wish I'd known when I was younger and it's something I've taught to my kids I've got four four adult children and to now millions around the world but honestly in our inner depth of our wisdom of our mind and we can really unpack that as we're going along there is this this awareness that change is good and uncertainty is okay. And I just have to get my head around the possibilities of that and recognize that if things don't quite work out, it's okay. I, I have an alternate pathway and this is the plan that I can, I, I'm not, I, I pre-prepare, pre-prepare in advance that, that that may happen, that may happen. I might shift to this, I might shift to that. And then I also don't, what's related to helping helps with change. Another thing, another mindset that is very good is one of not um it's also related to the possibilities concept but if you if you try a lot of different things and you feel like oh that didn't work that didn't work i never see that i that didn't work as a failure i always see it as something that i 
no, it doesn't work. So it's a very subtle shift, but it's a massive shift. And then it helps me deal with change too, because it means that I'm going to keep trying and experimenting and with all these different possibilities. And if it doesn't work, I'll try something else. I don't beat myself up and think, oh my goodness, that didn't help. Now those, those may not tie directly to change in the most obvious link, but they do. When you have this possibilities of things, um, things, possibilities mindset, there's many different options that you can allow yourself to move out of just that pathway that you, that you, that you can set down and, and hope to achieve, but that you can move out of that. You will find automatically that you feel better. And then secondly, if you allow yourself to see things that didn't work out as lessons learned and immediately, what can I learn from this? All of those help you to conquer the fear of change and uncertainty and help you actually get excited about change. I hope that is is sort of clear, but that's how, that's how I manage change. It's interesting because when a when you're born, it, I've always found this very very fascinating because you don't really understand change. It's only as you are taught it that you start fearing the change as well. I think it, it's it's a curious thing because I know for me growing up, I was always I didn't mind it. I didn't care about it. It was only when I lost someone that was very close to me mm. that I started thinking, well, this sucks. Why do I have to go through this? Which then led to all kinds of other, like me rejecting change mm. and me like looking at all these other possibilities as bad things, even though they technically weren't bad things. They were for my growth and for my learning. But I was just like, I was resisting them because I chose to resist it. Uh, but I like how you you dug into how that that pos- that that um, I guess it's always positive. It's just we got to unlock it once again. We, we yeah, it's in it. there. It's in there. Yeah, it's in there. We have this core. Um, the way I love to explain it is that if you think of the mind and the brain, they're two separate things. And um, the the brain, I mean, I've got some models here and there's a, there's a brain and the brain is not the mind, even though currently today, when we say mind, people think brain and mind are the same thing. So it may be just to help with the change question, a good idea for me quickly to define the difference. I don't know if that, if you, if you're comfortable with me doing that, diving in and then from there, I'll bring, link it back to the change question, because if you understand mind, change becomes very easy to start dealing with. And before I dive in, I want to just make a comment on what you said that you went through a loss, a tragic loss of someone close to you. And that that suddenly when change became frightening for you, because it was such a massive change that what you would have done, because your brain and your brain and mind are designed for survival. Mm. We're wired for love. We have an optimism bias. That's what all the science actually shows. We're not wired for negativity like this has been often said in the public, in the, in the sort of media kind of thing. That's not actually accurate science. So when something like that happens, it throws your world out so completely, you develop a response and that response is to cope in the moment, but it's not always sustainable. And your coping mechanism was you just, you know, to cope, you just couldn't cope with that change. So you kind of blocked, okay, change is bad. And for the moment, for that particular moment, it helped you, but then it became something that you got perhaps stuck in. And then it became, you know, it became a built in wired in way of responding to a lot of different things. And that's where the change. So then it wasn't sustainable, but you recognize that and you worked on that. So I just wanted to comment on that, that very often we'll go through an experience and we, in the moment we respond and it's, purely for survival, but it's not sustainable and it doesn't work long-term. And those are the things that can become toxic habits that then hold us back and create more anxiety. And those are the ones we have to go through the painful process of digging into and rewiring. Mm. 
Mm. So, and that's, and, and everything I've just said is mind. So when people say, what is mind in science, it's often considered to be the hard question of science. I always say personally, it's the easiest question of science because it is so obvious what mind is. It's in our staring us in our face and we don't actually realize that. Like you and I are using our mind right now to have this conversation. The, whoever's listening and watching, they are using their mind to process this, this conversation. So mind is you processing life. And it's it, and you do it by thinking, feeling, and choosing. So we receive the signals, visual and auditory, and so on, and then we think, feel, and choose. So I always describe mind as being three things, and they like my fingers. I'm holding stuck together. These three things always work together. So mind is how you think and how when you, and how you feel and how you choose. When you think, you will feel. You never don't feel when you think, and when you think and feel, you will choose. And that cycle constantly happens at incredibly fast speeds in the different levels of mind. So this, that, that's the action, that's the mind in action, and it happens at three different levels. And it's always happening. You're never not thinking. If you're alive, your mind is working. Your mind is in action. So we can go three weeks without food. We can go three days without water. We can go three minutes without oxygen. This is averages. But you don't even go three seconds without using your mind. So you're always using your mind. Sleep, awake, your mind's always going. So your mind is you. It's what you, it's your decision to talk, to think, to eat, to get up, to respond to. It's your mind. So right now, if I, if I if I if we had to just have an example of mind, you are hearing what I'm saying and you are thinking about the next question. That's your mind in action. And I'm using my mind to speak. So that's mind. And our mind simply moves through our brain. So our, our mind can't because it's a quantum force. It's basically a quantum force. And there's a lot of actually you Nobel. Know, Prize, uh, Nobel Prize winning research showing how uh, that, that we, uh, we, our mind is the sort of almost gravitational fields and it's unique to us. It's not like it's floating somewhere. It's, it's where it is, we're not quite sure, but mind is certainly um, a component that is moving through brain and brain. It's definitely the primary force and the brain is the responder because when someone dies, that goes, you go, but your, and your brain disintegrates and your body disintegrates. But when you're alive, it's the life force of mind that keeps the brain and the body alive. So the brain is a very complex responder. And I've been studying this for 38 years and the, and the, it's 30, it's a complex responder. And we know more and more about the brain, but the brain doesn't make the mind. So a lot of the research and a lot of the literature and a lot of the popular media say talk about the brain producing the mind as though the mind is like shooting out of the brain in some way and it's being produced from certain circuitry in the brain. But all the research studying mind-brain take tell people to do things like they'll show people a picture or they'll get them to read something or they'll ask them to think about something. So first people are using their mind, then they measure the response in the brain, which is what I do with my research. So it's not like the brain produce the picture that the person's seeing it's their picture is shown to the person or the action the person performs an action and then we measure the response in the brain so we need to see the brain as a physical responder and the mind works through the brain the brain responds to the mind and therefore the mind is actually directing how the brain works and if you understand that then you can use your mind to control your mind to change your brain and change your body and that is a really cool concept to cleaning up your mental mess when you, when you kind of get a handle on that. I can wow. see you when I ask you a question. <laughs> I, can see, I can see your mind in action. You've got such a lovely big smile on your face. And I know you've got some great questions. So far away. <laughs> wow. I'll just let you like take over right now. Like just you're on a roll there. <laughs> I was like absorbing all this amazing information. Um, 
Wow. Uh, one of the questions that I did have out of all the myriad of questions from that, res- from that response, which was amazing, was, you know how people talk about, you know, using, we only use about 10% of our, our brain. Is that 10% of our physical brain or 10% of our mind? Okay, so what people have got such a good question. So excellent and very insightful. Not many people have asked me that particular question. In fact, you're the first one who's asked me like that. People have said, how much of our brain do we use? But you've immediately linked it back to to mind. So well done. That was excellent and very insightful. Um, basically, we're always using our whole brain. You can't not use your whole brain. Your mind is so massive. It's it, it uses your whole, your mind is actually using your entire brain and your body all the time. So here's another little model. So our mind is using our brain and our body in fact it's our mind that's actually switching on every genetic um, all the genetic switches in every cell of our brain and our body at any one moment so we've got somewhere between 37 and 100 trillion cells collectively in our brain and body and it's your mind your thinking feeling and choosing that is driving the functioning of your genes therefore your cells therefore your systems therefore everything of your organ systems etc etc so everything about you is being driven by mind so the brain Brain is always responding. It collectively has to always be working on this um, with the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system. Everything is always going. The enteric nervous system between the gut and the brain. Nothing ever switches off. What we what they're trying to allude to in that research is that we that we there's this understanding, instinctive understanding that our minds are massive and that we haven't tapped into the potential. And that's where there's so much stuff out there, self-help and movies and things talking about the potential of the human mind, because the potential of the human mind is absolutely phenomenal. It is unlimited. And um, it, it is, it's, it's, un, it's, but we restrict it because we don't fully use it properly. And I teach mind management, which is helping people to understand how to manage this power and use it in the direction, not for weird things and not for, you know, crazy things, but to actually just have be a decent human and live the lives that we meant to live and achieve the wonderful goals and things that we that we are designed to be able to achieve and also to accept the hardships of life it's very powerful for you to have said to me earlier on that you lost a loved one and it affected your ability to deal with change that is for me a very powerful concept that shows a tremendous healthy response that you can actually have that insight you showed power to be able to analyze that in yourself. And so be, and being able to accept pain is a hugely powerful mind, powerful concept. Um, so when we talk about only using 10% of our brain, we use our whole brain all the time because your whole brain is needed just to be able to handle. In fact, the brain can't even handle the mind. That's why we have to sleep because the mind is so demanding that your brain can't keep up with it. And that's why we get our brain gets physically very exhausted and we have to have resets. And there's all kinds of things that you can do, like think of moments and so on for resets and so on. So our brain gets very physically tired. And a lot of things like anxiety and depression are symptoms. They are symptoms. They're not illnesses. They're symptoms of underlying issues. And very often it's because you've tired our brain out. Our brain's physically tired. So 10% alludes more to um, how, how we're using our mind. And that's a huge estimate. I would say that we probably only use about 0.1% of our mind effectively. And we can improve how we use our mind as, as we understand mind management. But we've been in a 30-year era of mismanagement of mind where we've actually gone backwards. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this. And I talk about this in one of the chapters in my book about we've just got on this bandwagon role that oh, well, we're advancing medically and technology. Look where we are at. And yes, we can look around us and the advances in medicine and technology are just phenomenal. 
but we're going backwards as humans. As humans, we've gone backwards when it comes to people living longer, etc. So from between 1999 and 2014, the decades-long trend of people living longer actually reversed. So and, and so people are now dying between 8 and 15 years younger, despite advances in medicine and technology, from, and this is the worst thing, preventable lifestyle diseases or, or chaos or disorders or whatever you want to call it. So in other words, if, if, if you take the word lifestyle, people are dying from preventable lifestyle issues preventable so the key words here are preventable and lifestyle and those are both those are totally in, uh, hooked around mind because preventable means that me I can do something about it lifestyle is also me I can do something about it so we see that when we shift to a very physical focus when we just focus on the brain which is what's happened in the last 30 to 50 years we've become so neuro reductionistic Yes, it's been an exciting phase of research. I mean, I've been involved for 38 years and I've watched our understanding of the brain grow. And it's easy to get totally sucked up into just brain, brain, brain. But it's you you lose the context when you realize, okay, brain and mind, mind is the bigger portion and mind is the thing that's moving through the brain. And so when we lose that, that context, Jay, it becomes an issue of us not being able to um, see the wood for the trees and we've become very neuro-reductionistic and we try we spend billions of dollars across the globe trying to identify the neurological components for depression and schizophrenia and and why people and this emotion and that emotion and they'll never find it because you're so different to me and every human's different and the way the pattern of emotion shows up in your brain is going to be different to mine sure there's certain areas that we know frontal lobe if you are if you're very depressed there'll be a lower asymmetry in your energy and lower blood flow and you'll be more impulsive but that's not that's more it's very general your your unique experience will look very different to mine in and yes we may they, two people may be very anxious and yes you'll see red spots across their brain but still the pattern will become when you analyze it it'll be completely different and when you ask them the story of their life it'll be completely different and that's what mind is it's this completely different unique way that we are perceiving the world and managing the world managing our lifestyle decisions managing how we are responding to things so if you have an issue happening maybe in your family you have a crisis or you have an argument with someone and and you're just about to go and do something and you it's your mind you had the argument your mind your you are your mind you responded and how you manage that is mind and how you go to the next activity is mind so when we start seeing it like that then we don't and we don't we don't use that properly mind management is a skill the mind is malleable we need to learn to understand mind and mind management and we need to recognize how to tap into the inner wisdom our tremendous strong inner wisdom of mind and that's kind of what where my science and research has gone because i've worked with trauma with alzheimer's with learning disabilities with traumatic brain injuries which is that way i did a ton of research because we were told back in the 80s the brain couldn't change and I thought, well, I'll take the worst case scenarios and show that it doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter how traumatic the brain injury or whatever. If you get mind management, you can still achieve cognitive and emotional and um, and uh, intellectual growth and change in your life. And that's what I've basically proceeded to show. So there's a long answer. We use all of our brain and we use very little of our mind, but we can learn to use our mind and we should. It's a skill that we should learn from young and constantly develop which is why 
I write, this, this is my 19th book, by the way, but this is why I'm writing about the subject. But this is the most comprehensive and up-to-date because I just did clinical trials as well. So I put the clinical trials in there, the most updated version of mind management, of exactly what we've just been speaking about. Your 19th book, my goodness. My 19th book. <laughs> <laughs> that is About incredible. the same subject. My mother said to me the other day, she said, how do you still write so much stuff about the same thing? I said, well, there's so much to say about the mind, you know. So. Do you ever get sick of it at all? Never. It's fascinating. There's every day I spend, and that's one of the things that I talk about in the book, is brain building. So with my mind, I learn new information daily. Your brain is so hungry for new information that our brain is designed to brain build. And one of the greatest forms of brain resilience and brain health and mental resilience or mind resilience and mind health, so notice I use both, okay, mm mind health and brain health is brain building. So every day I'm doing more research on the mind, brain, brain, neuroscience, all this stuff. I spend at least an hour to two hours a day doing research and a lot of days more when I'm creating podcasts and that kind of thing and writing new books and doing, I still do clinical trials. We swing straight from one into publishing papers. So that brain building is essential to mental health and mental resilience. And it's one of the most overlooked tools of mental health. Mm. That's that's we can that we can do, but we can chat more about that too. You've also got in this book uh, the brain and mind cycle, I believe it is. I think neurocycle, yes, neurocycle, yeah. Uh, I've found that fascinating. But one of the things that I did want to ask, I promise I'll get to this in a moment. Oh, absolutely, uh, whatever. And trauma. Now, I wrote when I was in university for like a semester. I went through a um, a critical thinking sort of course. And in that critical thinking course, we had to write a paper on a particular subject. So I chose trauma and I looked at, and I, did, I studied and I did a lot of research on how trauma affected young kids um, bet- before, the, before adolescence. And what I found was rather staggering. And I myself, I went through traumatic experiences mm. from the age of six so, onwards, pretty much. I'm sorry. Mm. And it was almost like I, what I discovered was, for me at least, I, I walked around in this daze, like I think my brain, what it did or my mind, whichever one it was, sort of put that block there and that's why I walked around in the daze. But that's his amazing thing. When I went through adolescence and my brain started developing more, I started becoming more aware of things in my surroundings and then what I started to notice was uh, like, for example, going through depression at the age of 14 and why I went through that in the first mm-hmm. place. It all stemmed back to that traumatic experience. At six. Mm-hmm. At six. And then all the other traumatic experiences sort of enhanced it and made it 10 times worse. Um, mm-hmm. And then more, more so recently, like 2019, I went through depression again mm-hmm. because of everything just, sort of collapse on itself. And what I'm curious about is trauma and like how that really impacts the mind compared to the brain or the distinct links. Cause I found there was a link, but I'm curious your thoughts on it. Well, that's 
once again, you ask excellent questions and it's, it's great that we can use your example. That's okay to take your example and unpack what's actually happened. So yes, there's a definite link between the mind and the brain. You can't separate them. So there's the separate, but inseparable. So the mind needs the brain as much as the brain needs the mind. So the brain needs the, the brain and body need the mind in order to just function and the mind needs the brain in order to be able to express to store memories and to express and to be able to make things work and to be able to function in the world so it's a beautiful integrated relationship and in in the in the book in the first half you'll see I've done a summary of the clinical trials and my most recent ones where I show because my research has been around mind brain interaction for 38 years so it's the neuroscience but I've looked at the mind uh, specifically the mind-brain interaction. And what does that mean? So we've already started talking about what mind means and we've spoken about the brain being physical substance, but the, what is the interaction and what are thoughts and memories and what's trauma and what is a trauma memory? And those are words and emotions, emotions, memory, trauma memory, they kind of thrown around. So I'm going to unpack it very simplistically with images and props, and then I'm going to re- link it back to your example. Is that okay? That's okay. I, okay, I do perfect. have a quick, quick interjection question. Absolutely. Absolutely. That might, that might actually help. Do you believe, having said all this, do you believe that trauma is the number one cause for our mental mess or the anxiety or everything like that? I think it's one of. I think that it's not the only one. It's one of because we because trauma there's there's different types of trauma. So you get acute trauma, which is the sudden stuff, like when COVID first hit us, or when someone just suddenly dies, or you suddenly have a a huge argument, or something traumatic happens. So that's acute. It's in the moment and. You never prepared for that. Then you get the traumas, like you mentioned, when you were six, you had a, a very clear incident of trauma. Then you get, um, and that was a big thing. Then there's little traumas in between that one has, like maybe consistent bullying at school, which mm-hmm. also add up and do damage. And then what could be in a marriage, or it could be a boss at work, or it could be the consistent trauma we've been through for 12 months as a global, as a world, with the, what's going on with COVID, not knowing the next thing, and when's the next shutdown, or when's the next financial crisis, or when's the next crazy president <laughs> things happening in the United States affecting the whole world and yeah. gosh and you know the, that's constant trauma so trauma is huge but what it boils down to is is um our ex- sorry let me add to that then also these toxic habits we build which is very much in response to trauma as well and in response to just experience not even always trauma just experiences we build habits in response to coping strategies and then we try to build new thoughts whatever so um trauma is huge but and it's, it's and it's different. It's it's got as I mentioned, it's got all these different there's all these different types of trauma. So I do have a whole section in the book. There's a whole chapter defining trauma and the different types of trauma as I've described them. So um, if we think then of mind being how I think, feel, and choose. You wake up in the morning. You're a six-year-old. You wake up in the morning. As you open your eyes, you're experiencing life. And let's say that it's a normal day for you. It's at going to school, and you wake up and get ready and say goodbye to your parents and go to school and have whatever learn. All those are experienced through your mind, and you are building all of that into your brain. So during the course of any day, the minute we open our eyes, we use our mind. We think, feel, choose. To do what? To build thoughts. So we build thoughts. I've got a little prop here. It's a little plant. Thoughts look like trees. So we are building every experience that we have from the time we open our eyes till the time we go to sleep into thought trees in three places. The first place that's easiest to understand is the brain. So we build these little trees into the brain. And notice I've said thoughts. This is a thought tree. So that we so we think, feel, and choose, and we build thoughts. We do that when you're awake, okay? And thoughts, as you can see, a tree's got lots of branches. 
So a tree is made of branches and roots with lots of roots. A thought is made of lots of memories. And these branch mm-hmm. memories, which are the memories, this is what we like kind of how we express our behaviors and our emotions. And then these, these root memories are the causes. It's the story, the origin story, the source. So the source, so the experience happens, which is like a seed being planted in the ground. Then that immediately grows roots and grows a little tree trunk or a little stem. And that then produces these behavior memories with emotions attached to them. So the leaves are like the little emotions and the branches are the the information of what happened. And then that generates a signal. This is a healthy thought. So it's going to, let's say that's a a happy, um, fun fun event that you had with a friend at school or a great, you you, 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 did, you wrote a great paper at school or you did something great at school and your teacher praised you. So there was a seed sown, it was a happy memory and all the details, it may only have a hundred branches on it or 10 branches or whatever. Maybe another day there's another positive experience at school with a friend or teacher. That's all this is, let's say this is the schoolwork thought or it's the friend thought. The thought's the whole concept. The memories are the details of that. So when we pull up a thought from our unconscious mind, we're pulling up a lot of memories. So it's one thought, but it's going to be a lot of stuff in your head, a lot of emotions because of all the branches that come up. Okay, so that's very important to understand that concept. So thoughts and memories are different things. A thought is made of memories. Okay, and a thought is the whole concept. So now let's say you wake up and you're that six-year-old and here's now a toxic thought. So you have a toxic experience and it's very much alive, but it's like the living dead. If you think of Lord of the Rings or something, you know, it's literally all Game of Thrones, like the living dead, you know, just to give analogies to, to us. Um, the experience happens and it may be multiple, it may be one traumatic event. And that's the roots that, so the seed is sown and the roots are formed. Because as soon as you experience it, you're thinking, feeling and choosing, you're processing, you, you're going through the experience with your mind. And it gets built into the, the roots, the, the tree trunk forms, which is the perspective. And that then starts generating behaviors and the emotions. And it all happens very fast. And then as you think about it, it grows, there's more roots, more branches, more roots, more branches, each new experience adds more roots, more whatever you think about and experience the most. So you experience, you think, you feel, you choose, grows, experience, think, feel, choose, grow, experience. And so it becomes stronger and stronger. And we see over time that this then becomes ingrained. It becomes a long-term memory. And if it's undealt with within three weeks, it's a long-term memory. Within nine weeks, it's become an automatized habit which means it's intelligent, it's alive, it's living, it's dynamic, it's in the non-conscious mind, and I'll explain what that is in a moment, but it's 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 become an automated habit. Habits don't form in 21 days, they form in 63. A memory forms, in a long-term memory forms in 21 days, more or less, but it takes 63 days to, to nine weeks to form a habit. Most people think it's three weeks, it's not three weeks, which means that it's going to take at least nine weeks to unwire this. You're going to have to reverse that process, you're going to have to you're going to have to embrace process and reconceptualize. Okay. So that's the basic foundational principle. So during the day you think, feel, choose in response to life and you build either positive thoughts, healthy thoughts or toxic thoughts. And then we either deal with our toxic thoughts or we don't. And they just keep getting reinforced and whatever you think about the most will grow. Now these experiences, where do they grow in the brain? These little branches and the, um, are the den- called dendrites and these are the axons and these are the dendrites, the, the other part of the, the, so it's on the neuron in the brain. But they're generating quantum energy too. So we also know that not only are they physically 
these are made of proteins. These, these literally are made of proteins and chemicals. So these are real structures in your brain. So when you think, feel, and choose and use your mind, you that's neuroplasticity. You're changing your brain. You're sending that experience of the trauma, that experience of the bullying, that experience of the sexual abuse, that experience of the happy, nice teacher giving you praise or that great relationship that you've discussion, you just had with your best friend and you feel amazing or that wonderful, whatever, all of it becomes, it's an experience you think you'll choose and you will build it into your brain. So you will change the structure of your brain and that's neuroplasticity. If you don't ever think of it again, it'll just disintegrate. If you think of it enough over three weeks, it'll become a memory that will be established. If you then stop thinking about it, it won't impact your behavior. But if you keep thinking about it after nine weeks, it's changed your behavior. It's impacting how how you think, how you feel, and how you choose in your behaviors, your emo, your cognition, your intellectual, etc., on every level. But if it hasn't had nine weeks of attention, it will just kind of get stuck in your non-conscious mind. So any one day during the day, we think, feel, choose, and build. And then at nighttime, we sort out what we built. We wired for survival. Our brain is wired for love, and our mind is wired for optimism. So to step back one step, your, you wire, you store these thoughts in your brain, in these trees made of proteins on the neurons, those are called dendrites. You also store the same memory in your mind. So it's in, quite, in, a, in a quantum field and um, physicists have won Nobel Prizes talking about this quantum field. So it's not some woo-woo thing, it's actual science. And then the third place we store everything is in our body. So we made of, as I mentioned earlier, 37 to 100 trillion cells collectively in our brain and our body. So the memory that you're forming when you woke up this morning, the me first memory that you formed in response to maybe the email that you read on your phone, I'm just giving you something, just take some, let's say you, you reach, you open your eyes, you reach for your phone and you read an email and you respond. And that is stimulation. You think, feel, choose, you've built either healthy or toxic thought into your brain, into your mind, second place, and in every cell of your body. So that was a, a, a horrible horrible email, you would have built a toxic response in your brain, in your mind, and in your body. And this is why in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, we shouldn't call it disorder. We should call it a reordering of the brain. As you experience something, you neuroplastically reorder the brain for survival. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's, 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 it's not the best sustainable response, but in that moment, it's all you could do. The, the thing is that the all you could do is maybe is in the long run may not be sustainable and becomes that negative pattern that impacts relationships and whatever, all the things down the line. Okay, so that during the at night, you sort out what you've built during the day. So that's why we have dreams and nightmares because we're trying to get rid of this. A nightmare is basically trying to get rid of this that we haven't dealt with. So anything undealt with will manifest in our dreams and nightmares. It will manifest physically in our body and it will manifest physically, obviously, in our brain and manifest in our mind. So we've got three places we experience things. And that's why it's so hard to deal with hard stuff, to deal with toxic traumas and toxic habits, big, small, little, acute, long-term, short-term, one-off, bad habits, bad responses, um, patterns you've maybe got into in a marriage or a relationship where you um, where you make assumptions and you keep living in those same patterns. It's all very physically felt because you can't separate mind and brain and body. If I 
get into an argument with with someone who I've argued with before and I perceive them in a certain way, as soon as they trigger me, this is going to come up and that's how I'm going to respond. But my whole body's going to respond and my brain and my mind. So I'm going to feel the heart palpitations. I'm going to feel sick in my gut or whatever the case may be. So there's an absolute link. And I show this in my most recent clinical trials, which is in the book, about how when we had our control and an experimental group and First of all, we put them, I took them over the 63 days because that's, I also was doing research on how long it takes to form a habit because everyone's, there's very little research out there confirm on showing how long it takes to form a habit. Everyone just goes on about habits, but no one's really done very good research on it. There's a, only a couple of other scientists and myself that have actually now shown my most recent clinical trials, most up-to-date research showing that it takes 63 days at least to form a habit. Okay. So Essentially, and I lost my train of thought for a moment. Okay, so I was telling you about how we, when when we experience something. Um, okay, Jay, uh, mm -hmm. let me stop there for a moment. Let's. It, it, I don't. I don't want to go off track. I'm saying so much stuff. Do, should we just regroup a little bit before I go into explaining the next whole phase? Do you want to? Do you want to do that? Do you want to ask let's, me? Let's do that. Let's, um, one question that I was very yeah. curious about when you mentioned dreams there. Um, this might be a weird question to ask. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Have Go you done any, any research or any study on when males have what we call wet dreams at all and why do we have them? I don't I haven't done direct research on that, but it just shows once again the integration between mind and body. So whatever we're experiencing during the day is built into our brains. And then at nighttime we're sorting out our thinking. So and our body is responding. So whatever we're dealing with in our brain, and, and that happens a lot when a, a, a young a, a young guy's going through hormonal changes. It's a very, very natural response to because we are very sexual beings. We think about sex up to 95% of the day, male and female, because it's a beautiful thing it's a it's not just a physical thing it is a survival thing it's a connection thing it's a beautiful thing there's just so much around the whole concept of sex that we should talk more about that it's very normal for a young um, young girl and a young guy when, when their bodies hormones are changing and that kind of thing and they're trying to deal with all of that for them to be processing it in their dreams and so there is that because you, your, your dream is sorting out these thoughts and these thoughts are in your brain and your body so you because remember, thoughts are spilt in three places. So whatever you're thinking about in your dreams, you will experience in your bodies. And that's why people, when they have nightmares, for example, they'll wake up and feel like their heart's been crushed. They feel sick physically because your whole body is, is experiencing that housekeeping function to try and sort out this mess. And that's why it's so important that we get proactive in mind management because we can then be more in control of our dreams and our nightmares. Mm. So to to come back to your question about the integration between mind and body and trauma, you which were the other two questions, which which is the third question ties into that with the, with the the wet dreams and so on, um, is that that yes, without a doubt they're integrated. And when I did my research, I just and I did a lot with trauma people. So I'll, I'm going to answer your trauma question. I haven't forgotten the trauma question. I'm going to get back to that. I just wanted to lay the foundation. Essentially, when we took our control group and experimental group, the experimental group got mind management. They got the five-step neurocycle process that we're going to be talking about. The control group didn't. But both groups went through extensive testing. And the testing that they went through was 
we did standard psychological testing. Then I've developed a psychological test that within that can literally read your unconscious mind and how you're self-regulating and is linked to how your cortisol and homocysteine in your body and your HPA axis significant correlation. So when you when you fill in that scale, we can we can see from that scale and predict from that scale how self-regulated, how mind managed you are, how you're managing your stress and just life in general. Then we also did the person's narrative. And I'm stressing all of this because the narrative is the most important component of anyone story it's the narrative that it's the narrative has been kicked out of current mental health practices because people have mental health has been put on the same level as the biomedical model so people you have people we told okay you've got cancer that's the diagnosis that's the treatment you've got diabetes that's the diagnosis that's the treatment you've got heart disease that's the diagnosis so they're trying to say you've got depression that's the diagnosis that's the treatment you've got anxiety, but it's not because it works for the for it works for the biological component it works for brain and body but it doesn't work for mind. So if, if we take your narrative and we and we forget all about what you went through as a six-year-old and your progression of your life and what you've gone through as an adult and where you are now, that is massive. That is no one has got that story. No one sees life like you. There's something you can do that no one else can do. If I don't bring that into the picture, which is mine, which is you, if I if I exclude that and just say, oh, you are clinically depressed, I have missed the point completely and I've put you in a very dangerous position because I've ignored the context of your life and I haven't allowed you to express your life and that's what's currently happening with the current mental model which is why people are dying 15 to 25 years younger because they the mind has been kicked out the door the narrative and that's why I brought that into my research and I looked in the brain I use QEEG to see the response in the brain and the QEEG looks real time so it's a very effective way of seeing response in real time and then we also looked at the DNA looked at right down the level of chromosomes and telomeres and so we and we looked and you had the blood hpa axis so we looked at the brain body connection in a very very intensive way and i'm stressing this to say that the control group were made very aware of their issues very aware of they're feeling depressed they're feeling anxious they're feeling worked up frustrated whatever they they were very aware of the emotions and also very aware of of Hey, we're getting insight into why they were feeling like that, but they didn't get any way of managing it. So there was awareness, but no management. They got so bad. Their the anxiety levels increased so badly. Their um, the biological ages, which we can look at the DNA, and your bio, biological age is not is should be the same as your chronological age. So if you're 30, your body should be like a 30-year-old. We found that our control group subjects without mind management, their, their chronological age was younger than their body age. So they had bodies, some of them were 30 years old, and they had bodies of a, a, a sickly 60-year-old, but they were only 30. And we found that with some of our, in, in the experimental group, we found that too, but the experimental group were taught mind management. They were taught how to manage, to use their mind, to manage their mind, to change their brain and to get all this toxicity under control, deal with the trauma, et cetera, et cetera. And then we found that the, the chronological and biological age matched within nine weeks. It's unheard of. Normally telomeres, which telomeres are the ends of chromosomes. Chromosomes look like X's and the telomere would be like my red nails. And telomeres are absolutely essential for, um, for cell division, which is happening Eight, like over more than a million every second of cells that we are making. And if your telomeres are unhealthy, you make unhealthy cells. And we found that telomeres, um, the health of a telomere is dependent on the health of your mind. And if your, so if your mind's a mess, your telomeres are a mess, your body's a mess. So there's this immediate link. But, and then normally they thought up to, because it's, so in other words, telomeres are a proxy for mind and how you're managing stress, et cetera. And the research 
most of the research up till now said that shown that it takes five years to see changes. We saw changes in nine weeks and we saw significant changes of telomeres, uh, telomeres uh, getting healthy in nine weeks, getting unhealthy in nine weeks with our control group. So, I mean, that speaks volumes for how much influence we can have over our brain and our body. So to come back to trauma, if you're experiencing something as a whatever, two-year-old, six-year-old, whatever age, and you have a terrible, like a childhood abuse or something like that, that is an experience that was built into your brain. You would have, so you, you experienced that trauma. And it, it, there was a seed sown, a root was grown, a perspective of life was grown and branched. And if it was repeated trauma, this thing got stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you're a child, you don't know how to deal with this. And then you go into, you know, this is suppressed, but this is abnormal, this the brain's not wired for this. So the, the brain tries to literally, will, you know, the brain will literally see, it's quite interesting, Jay, that we'll literally see this trauma as like a virus. So it sees it the same way it sees COVID. So for example, if you have COVID in your body, your immune system is, is sending out immune factors to fight COVID. When, you're, when you have a trauma, your immune system in your brain and your body are sending out immune factors to the site of the trauma, the physical structure in your brain, and they're trying to heal this. And your mind is sending up, um, this is this is like imbalanced energy in the mind. So your non-conscious mind where this is stored is sending up signals through the subconscious mind saying, hey, and the, you know what the signals are? This is the most fascinating thing. The signals from the mind about this are depression, anxiety, psychotic breaks, bipolar, all those scary words that we've been told are illnesses. They're not illnesses. They are signals from the brain, the body, and the non-conscious mind saying, hey, guys, there's something in here that needs attention. So depression is not an illness. It's a symptom of probably a trauma, it's probably some acute uh, big T, small T, whichever kind of trauma, which comes back to your question in the beginning. We all experience different types of traumas all the time. We also have toxic habits. If we've developed toxic habits, it also looks like this in the brain. And that in itself, your brain will also send out immune factors to fight this. And that increases inflammation around the toxic thought because that's what the immune system does. It sends out creates inflammation so that your body can heal itself. But if you don't deal with this, the inflammation doesn't go away, which is what it would normally do. So if you have COVID and you treat COVID or if you have a normal virus and you treat it, hopefully as we get advanced with our medications, but already what we're using is starting to work for COVID to reduce the inflammation and bring healing. Um, with measles and all, as we've advanced with medicine, what happens is that the inflammation is the body's protective response, but then you can't keep it there. You have to then get rid of the source. So that's, and that's the key is you have to get rid of this. You have to go from the behaviors to the source. So you need, we need to look at this, this reaction and, and recognize that depression isn't an illness. It's telling us it's a symptom of an underlying cause. So we have to embrace the depression, which is telling us, hey, pay, pay attention, embrace the anxiety, embrace the psychotic breaks, embrace the feelings of I'm crazy, embrace the feelings of the mental mess, whatever it looks like, process it to find, okay, from the signals, what are my behaviors? What are my emotions? Get specific. What is my perspective on life to get down to my cause? And that will happen in cycles of nine weeks. You're not going to find that answer in 24 hours or five minutes. It is daily work for about 45 minutes a day. And then within nine weeks, you can you can unravel this. You can pull this up and you can deconstruct and reconstruct, embrace, process, and reconceptualize, whatever analogy you want to use. Okay, lots of information. Do you want to unpack with some questions? Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop. My, my goodness. Like there is so much, so much there to really unpack. Um, I think you have explained it 
literally perfectly. I know we can go even further there, but your book, I'll just hold it up for people to see, Your Mental Mess, I think you've explained why we struggle with, I guess, depression, anxiety, all that sort of stuff. I think now is the perfect time to ask for some strategies on how to not go down that path or manage it wisely, manage it better. So can you recommend Absolutely. that are either not in the book or are from the book? Absolutely. Well, the first half of the book kind of talks about what we're talking about now and it helps you to understand what your mind is and all that stuff. And then the second part is very much strategy. So absolutely. If I may very quickly just explain the different levels of mind, because I've thrown out words which I didn't explain. So as you said, mind is thinking, feeling and choosing, but there's three levels of mind. And the most obvious level is conscious mind. We're consciously having a discussion. Are we aware we're not asleep? Then if you go to sleep, what is happening? Well, your non-conscious mind is operating, but your non-conscious, N-O-N, operates 24-7. So now we'll be talking consciously, our non-conscious mind is also working. And we can feel our non-conscious mind through our subconscious. So our subconscious is a bridge between the conscious and the non-conscious. And it's the part where we actually tune in, like as I'm talking now, all kinds of thoughts are popping into your mind. That's the, those are the thoughts coming, thought trees with all their memories coming from the non-conscious through the subconscious to the conscious mind. Certain of those you're paying attention to, to because they're relevant to our discussion and some you're basically pushing aside because they're irrelevant to the discussion. So then they'll, they'll go sink back down. And so that's happening all the time. So the non-conscious is massive, operates 24-7, is infinite in, in capacity. And at the core of your non-conscious mind, think of it like a massive forest, this infinite forest with all these trees. In the middle are all these beautiful, beautiful forest green trees, like the perfect rivers, just like exquisite paradise. Around the outside, you've got slightly weaker looking trees. And in between those, you've got these. Okay, so these represent the traumas, the toxic habits, the things that make us a mess. So if you can imagine the core surrounded by these, that is then your picture of mind. And what we're doing at the moment is we are consciously listening to the that that middle part, the forest, we, that middle, as you'd have a great discussion, that beautiful paradise part of our mind, which is the core of the non-conscious mind, is sending messages through the subconscious mind of information related, which is how you can ask questions and how we can have a discussion and how there's a great rapport and we're learning stuff and we're sharing. And that's that's us accessing our wisdom. And I'm saying that to say that that's, that's, that wisdom mind is what is one of the main strategies. We're not, is, is, is how is, Mind management is self-regulating to the point where we access that beautiful paradise part of our mind to fix up these things that are on the outskirts. So it's the ability to stand back and observe yourself, which we designed to do, which we see when we do that, it's called the multiple perspective advantage. When we do that, we'll see when we consciously stand back and observe our own thinking, feeling and choosing, we can then watch how we're speaking. We can watch our facial expression. We can watch how we form our words. I'm very aware now of what I'm saying, what I'm doing. I've made you very aware now. When you, you can become intensively aware of how you're responding, your body language, the impact it's having on the person. We can train ourselves to increase that. And that is self-regulation. When you self-regulate, my research and other research of science has shown that you can do that every 10 seconds. So we literally, and we're doing it. 
on a non-conscious level, we are thinking, feeling, and choosing at 400 billion actions per second. I mean, that's an inconceivable number. We don't know what to do with that. So we don't have to even worry about that. Consciously, however, through our subconscious mind becoming making us aware, every 10 seconds, we more or less are having a conscious aha moment. We so so my key is that uh, my, my point is that let's grab onto those te- every 10 seconds moments because then you can direct your responses. So then you become a responder and not a reactor because we all know when we react, we'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time, we'll lose our temper, we'll get angry, we'll get irritated, we'll get frustrated, we'll we'll make ourselves feel worse, we'll start all that stuff. But if we if we can recognize scientifically that we actually are every 10 seconds consciously aware, we just got to train ourselves to tune into that. We see when you do that, there's a massive increase in activity in the frontal lobe. And it goes from what we call asymmetry, which is an imbalance of energy, to a balance. And when I talk about energy, I'm talking about delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma, which most people have heard of. And they flow like waves in the sea from the big all the way up to the the crest on the beach and the wave, wave crashes and it makes little little waves and then gets sucked back in again. That whole cycle, each of those little wave ripples represents a wave in the brain. And when we are standing back and observing our own thinking, we activate the energy correctly in our brain. So let's say that, um, let, so, okay, so to come back to your question of strategies, mental mess, every human is on a continuum. All of us battle with mental health. It's not just some people have mental illness. You've got to get away from that narrative. It's a scary, stigmatizing, awful narrative. And it makes people that are battling in extreme states feel completely insane. All of us at some point are crazy. All of us at some point feel crazy. All of us at some point are insane and act insane. And sometimes we have periods in our life where we've been so traumatized that we have tremendous psychotic breaks and we're at a really, really broken point where we feel like we just cannot go on, where we are having huge mood swings and and, and hearing voices and having terrible nightmares and, and mares and dissociating. And those are all ways that our mind is using to cope with this. So those are reactions of the mind to coping with the traumas, the undealt with traumas, and it's the the brain response. So it's the mind working through the brain. So all of those are messengers, and we need to understand them. But sometimes we're in such a psychotic state that we can't do it ourselves, and that's why we need others. And that's why loving support, um, therapy, all that kind of thing is very important in at any time, but in extreme states, because sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees in extreme states. So you need someone just to comfort you, to get you to the point where you can start um, managing. And then that's where we go from compassion and empathy into empowerment. And there's always that gray line of enabling, enablement in between. So you can you can have people, and that's a whole other discussion. But basically, we we, we need it. We need support. We can't do it alone. So essentially, the strategy is to understand and picture that forest. The first thing is okay. My mind is this forest, and this forest is in my mind, which is whatever this quantum energy is. Plus, it's in my brain. Plus, every single one of my cells is holding this memory, which then gives me the chance to accept my my feelings and my emotions and not to be scared. And that's really massive strategy. Don't be scared. If you feel this in your body, if you feel depression, if you feel anxiety, embrace it. Embrace means I'm going to hug. If I embrace you, I'm going to hug you. I'm bringing you into my fold. I'm gathering you into my fold. It means that I'm taking all of this and I'm saying it's okay to feel it. I'm giving you and me and ourselves permission. Research shows mind plus some great research that's come out and just recently a study came out of Texas University and University of Japan and it was six months after my research actually showing that if you look at at um, depression and anxiety and and 
like psychotic breaks and anger, frustration, all of those that if you look at them as helpful instead of harmful, immediately your brain energy changes. 1,400 neurophysiological responses that will work against your work for you. The stress response, which is designed to help you, will actually help you. But if you see those as, oh my gosh, I'm mentally ill, I'm insane, I'm crazy, I am shame, I am guilt, I am depression. Instead of saying, I feel shame because of, or I feel depression because of, those two create different responses in the brain and the body and in the mind. So when I say, okay, I acknowledge I'm feeling really depressed today, or I'm feeling really anxious and I'm really worked up, I'm really overwhelmed today. I embrace that. I may be crying. I may be feeling awful. I tune in to those signals. I'm feeling depressed. I say it. Say it out loud. Don't stuff it down. Say it. Even if you say it to yourself in the mirror, yourself in the room, to someone that you trust, but by acknowledging those emotional warning signals. So see depression as an emotional warning signal, not as an illness, okay? As soon as you do that, my research plus other research shows that then you've shifted the whole brain response and you've got a better chance of being resilient and being able to start working through the stuff. So it doesn't mean that pain's magically going to go away, but you have now done in neuroscience, you have brought by acknowledging that you have brought this into conscious awareness. You don't know what the whole thought looks like, but just by saying, I am depressed, feeling depressed today, I think it's because of, you've started bringing this into conscious awareness. What neuroscience shows us is that as soon as you are consciously aware of something, which is what I showed in my research too, then the thought, the, the protein this becomes malleable. This thing starts shaking. Like I'm shaking it now, these little protein bonds become weakened. Why is that significant? Well, then they can be changed. If these things are weakened, I can change it. So by me embracing this and saying, I feel depressed because of, or as a child, I was something happened at six and it really hit me when I was in my teens or as a young adult or whatever, in embracing that, you have shifted the power balance. You now control that instead of that controlling you. It's the most amazing thing because this is toxic. This is causing brain damage while it's in the neuro, while it's suppressed. But as soon as we acknowledge it, even though it's not fixed yet, the brain damage is already healing. You are changing your brain neuroplastically in the right direction. So now what we do is stand back, observe our own thinking. Start standing back, using your MPA, observing your thinking, feeling, and choosing. You acknowledge the depression. You say, I'm depressed today because of. I bring it up and say, okay, why am I depressed? Okay, I don't know why I'm depressed, but let me let me describe it in more depth and you get more descriptive. What am I feeling in my body? What are my physical warning signals? What's going on in my DNA, in other words? So first thing, so, so the first thing then, just to summarize where we're at, is this self-regulation every 10 seconds. How do you do it? by acknowledging the emotional and physical warning signals. When you do that, you're pulling this tree out of the forest or you are flying your helicopter over that over that forest of trees and you've landed it. Okay, I'm depressed because of something in that region over there. And you kind of land the plane. And then over the next 63 days, you'll dissect that tree, pull it out and reconceptualize it and grow a healthy new tree. But it starts with the emotional warning signals and physical warning signals. So two types of warning signals. Then that shines a light on your behaviors. So we go from, okay, I'm feeling depressed because of what's my behavior. I'm really aggressive today. I'm really snappy at everyone today. Um, so that's your behaviors. And then that tells you more about, I'm feeling so overwhelmed. Why? And then you start, why, why, why? And then from there you start, oh, my perspective today is that life really sucks. I think I'm seeing something. I think I'm feeling whatever. I think it's, and so that's day one. Day two, you're going to go go take dig a little bit deeper. Day three, day four, and you do these five steps over over these uh, for 15 to 45 minutes for for 21 days. 
then from day 22 to 63, you just spend seven to 10 seconds a day, a minute, maximum seven minutes, just practicing the newly reconceptualized thought. So in embracing, processing, and reconceptualizing, you are doing five steps. So now I've given you all this sort of theory and the analogy. Here you are in a situation today and um, you're feeling, what should we say? Should we, should we say that we take depression that like we were using? Or do you want to give me a, a, an example? And I'll walk you through this now very practically. Do you want to give um, me an example? I'm going, going through uh, panic attacks or anxiety because I did struggle with that as well. So Okay. Okay, so let's say now you, you, you're you about to go to do another podcast interview after this and you feel there's something, you get an email and it, you just you feel a panic attack coming on. Okay, so the first thing to do is to, to clinically stand back and observe your own thinking. So as you have that panic attack coming on, you, you can separate yourself. You can literally see yourself in two modes. So literally see yourself there and there's you in the panic attack. So you, as you do that, as you mentally do that, you draw on that internal forest, that paradise part of your thinking. And you stand back and you very clinically say, okay, what are my emotional warning signals? Yes, panic attack is the thing I'm doing, but what am I actually feeling? And then, and so you, you you gather awareness of it. Then how is my body feeling at the moment? So you look at the physical warning signal. Then you say to yourself, what are my behaviors? So it's very sequential. I put this very, very clearly in the book. What are my behaviors? And then from the behaviors, you say, okay, what is my perspective? So signals, that's the sort of odor being emitted, physical warning. What are my behaviors? What's more detail about, get as detailed as you can, gather awareness, embrace them. Then what is my perspective and why am I doing that? Okay, so I gather, first of all, it's the gathering of all of that, the physical and emotional the behaviors. Then you start asking the why questions. That's the second step. You start reflecting. First step, gather awareness. Second step, reflect. Reflect is a big word. It means ask, answer, discuss. Why, when, what, why am I, and you answer and you have these discussions with yourself very clinically in that standing back and observing your own thinking as though you're giving yourself therapy. And then you write things down. Now we all know the power of writing and it does a million things in the brain. It resets the brain. The biggest thing about writing is it's a way of you putting your brain on paper, but the, uh, yes, but it draws things out of the non-conscious. So it goes and it finds that tree in the forest. So it's not just you hovering above in a helicopter, you actually land the helicopter and you start seeing some of the detail. So writing should be a mental messy process when you're doing this third step. You don't have to be ordered or just vomit it on the page. And I've developed a system called the Metacog, which I teach in that book as well. I also have an app, by the way, that goes with this called the NeuroCycle app. And it's available on app stores and um, on app stores and I mean, the Google iPlay and iTunes and so on, the normal place. And that's got all of this stuff in the book but it's basically walking you through as so it's therapy so um i have to and there's a video on there on how to make a metacog and a metacog the, the the metacog is basically a way of writing that is very deep it pulls together this the two sides of the brain and, and it digs deep into the non-conscious it's a big messy thing but then step four you go back and you sort out and look for patterns and triggers etc and then you, step five is an act of reach it's an action that you do to keep you in mental space to close off for the day that's where you can pop in something like a positive affirmation now i'm very anti-positive affirmations if they're used in the wrong place you can if you feel terrible about a 
yourself from a trauma and you never deal with it and you just think you can put say five affirmations in the morning and five at night you're putting a band-aid on the wound it's like putting a band-aid on a pussy wound where you've never dealt with the cause of why it's the wound is pussy in the first place so positive affirmations do not work positive thinking does not work unless you have deconstructed and in the reconstruction process then you can use it so the active reach is a little reconstructive process to keep you anchored in mental peace you limit the time you spend on those five steps. I keep saying 50 to 45 minutes because you shouldn't spend longer. When you're dealing with trauma and toxic habits, it's very energy draining. So you'd spend that limited time and then the active reach is what you hang on to during the day. So it's something positive. It can be a statement. It can be an action. It can be a little song. Anything that is the little full stop that is keeping you in, okay, I learned this today and that's all I'm going to think about for the rest of the day. And then tomorrow morning you can unpack it again and you can take it deeper and deeper and deeper. So that's kind of the process that you would you would use to go through it. In the moment of a panic attack, you, you gathering awareness and defining and describing and going into that mode will calm you down tremendously. An additional technique you can do in the moment, because I've described that process you do over 63 days, because the panic attack's got a root. There's always a root to every behavior. So what you need is two things. You need an in-the-moment management of the panic attack, and then you need to go and do the work of why am I having the panic attack? And that's the 63 days. So in the moment, though, you can still gather awareness of the physical and emotional and the behaviors. You go into that multiple perspective advantage. You get very clinical and descriptive, and that distancing helps your brain to calm down and get resilience back into your brain. And then basically what you can do as well that works beautifully um, to calm you down is what I call the 10-second pause. And that is, as we all know, breathing is very good for the brain. When you breathe in, you reduce inflammation, you increase decision-making capabilities, you reset the brain right from the deep, uh, the deep parts of the brain. There's a million different reasons why breathing is so good for you. But one thing I have, one technique I have found that is powerful in helping to control panic attacks, helping control fast reactions, et cetera, is what I've developed called the 10 second pause, where you breathe in for three, which we've all often done, but you breathe out for seven. Mm. The reason you breathe out for longer than when you breathe in is because on the exhale, you increase your decision-making capability. That's what research has shown. So you, it doesn't mean that you that's the only way to breathe. That's, this is just a really good way for controlling panic attacks. If you're in a mental mess, in a toxic mode, you get into an argument and you've got to calm down. Or someone says something to you and you want to react. So it's the in-the-moment technique is powerful. Now you add a cognitive component to that. And that's you add three words. So as you're breathing in for three, you say think, feel to the count of three. And then as you breathe out, you say, choose. You know, when you do yoga breathing and you get that ocean breath, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So it's think, feel, choose. And you actually say those words. If you can do it out loud, that's even better because you've added now conscious mind to a very autonomic function, an automatic function that the brain and body are doing. You're using the oxygen how you want to use it. So you've you've actually used what we call your veto power. You're kind of creating a veto power and getting tremendous control. If you repeat that six to nine times, so for 60 to 90 seconds, you will be astounded at how you function after the 60 to 90 seconds because there would have been tremendous neurochemical chaos from the panic attack, from the argument, from the text, the email, whatever's thrown you into that immediate state. So what I've got in the book as well and in the app is it's in the in the book, I've got neurocycle life hacks 
things like this, what to do in the moment when you get caught in a panic attack, in a people-pleasing moment, in toxic words just spoke, in an argument you just got caught in, or you just read something in the news and it completely threw you, or, you know, these things that happen to us and we've still got to like function the next moment as a parent or as a in at work or whatever. So I've built those in as well. So the neurocycle is these five steps to train you to embrace, process, and reconceptualize, which is fancy words for getting you to use your mind to access that wisdom part of your mind so that you can actually then use your mind to change your mind to change your brain. So you're directing the neuroplasticity of your brain. So it's not even a technique. It is a system into which you can add the breathing. And, I, and I've got a whole chapter where I give you a bunch of neuroplasticity techniques like the 10-second pause. There's a whole bunch of them to help um, extra things that you can build into the five steps. The five steps doesn't replace therapy, it enhances therapy. So we have therapists around the world using it, clinics around the world using it. But if you go to therapy, you see your therapist weekly or twice a week, what do you do with the rest of the day and the rest of your life? You've got to control, you're always with your mind. Your mind never stops and you're always with your mind. So what I'm teaching people to do is you always have your mind. It never goes away. It's always there. So how do you manage it? And the neurocycle is is 38 years of heavy scientific research, most recently updated with my clinical trials, which I've put in the book, which shows you that when you manage your mind, you're managing your mental mess. It's giving you the tools to manage your mental mess. And it removes guilt and shame because all of us are battling. It puts us back in that continuum. Okay, I said a lot there. Did that help? <laughs> help or confuse? <laughs> no, it's, it's helped a lot, actually. I think people need to go rewind the whole episode and just like stop in certain sections and write down notes. Um, I'm going to be doing well, they, that. And they can get the, and they can get the book too, which will help them as well with processing it all. I was just about to mention that. So um, I want to honor you and acknowledge everything you. that you have just said and everything that you are doing and putting out there into the world. I mean, this book, if you've heard anything that Dr. Leaf has spoken about on this episode, it's literally ample room to go and buy her book <laughs> like she's she's got everything like i think we only just really covered the surface of what's actually in this book which is honestly amazing um i could speak to you for hours and hours and hours but um, unfortunately we don't have <laughs> that much <I> was, <laughs> we'll have another discussion you come on my podcast and we can continue the discussion <laughs> I, would, I would love that because my my journey and everything that i've been through is is quite fascinating um, like both traumatic and yeah. it's crazy and all the things that I learned from that, I'm in a much, much better place. Now I've got strategies. I've got, um, things that I learned from those experiences, which I believe, and I hope that can help people that might be going through the same thing. I'm a huge proponent and a huge advocate for helping people that struggle with purpose and, uh, going through the, like the brain and the mind and how that relates to purpose and what that really means. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I really, really do appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Leaf. Where can people buy this book, connect with you and, and learn more about you? Thank you so much. They can get pick up the book wherever books are sold, so Amazon, uh, everywhere. So if, you can also go straight to cleaningupyourmentalmace.com and then all the links for buying the book. So there were drleaf.com, which is my webpage, and my Instagram handle is Dr. Caroline Leaf, social media, I'm on all the platforms. So the normal thing, and we put out posts every single day, like you guys, you know, with helping, I, I teach this concept all the time. I'm giving little insights and there's the podcast cleaning up your mental mess. So we can send you all those links. Which I highly recommend the 
go and listen to her podcast and also go and listen to the other podcasts that she's been on. Highly fascinating stuff. And if you love you. like learning more about this, go to her website, buy the book, follow her on social media, do all that sort of stuff. I'm already doing that now. <laughs> but um, you. you guys can do it too. But Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for your time, your story, your advice, your wisdom, the whole bit. I've learned so much today. Thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.